Welcome to the Locked on Grizzlies podcast. My name is Sean Coleman. Again, very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you wherever you may be listening to you and your loved ones. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Um, got another podcast out today where we discuss Jaws' historic, historic performance last night for the Grizzlies. But all, overall, uh, we break down the uh, the disappointing opening night loss to the Spurs where the Grizzlies lost 131-119. to However, yesterday, uh, there were a few articles that were released both from local writers as well as national writers previewing the Grizzlies season. And one of the best that I saw out there was from the minds of Seth Partnow and Dave DeFore of The Athletic breaking down you know, the Grizzlies season outlook. They really gave high opinions of John Morant and also discussed the rest of the roster. Well, with that article in mind, I'm very happy to welcome the man known as Anchorage Man on Twitter. He does NBA research over the over at The Athletic. Seth Partnow has been kind enough to join us. Seth, how are you doing this morning, sir? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I, I, I've followed your work for a while. I'm obviously a Seth that does great work over at The Athletic. I'm obviously, you know, through, um, you know, the research that he does. Formerly, I was with the Milwaukee Bucks. You know, we'll touch on that uh, a bit later on. But a, a big reason why we wanted to have Seth come on to Locked on Grizzlies was him and Dave DeFore wrote an article over at The Athletic previewing uh, the Grizzlies season. Just a wonderful, very in-depth article. And, and Seth, let's just just jump right into it. You know, y'all hit on a lot of points when it came to the Grizzlies. And I feel last night's opener against the Spurs illustrated a lot of those points. But a point that y'all made early and often was how big a fan both of you are of John Moran. And then last night he goes and has arguably the greatest game a Memphis Grizzly has ever had. What makes the opinion of Morant so high in NBA circles compared to other young talents that are out there? Um, I think the the, the biggest thing is... Um, Obviously, he put up, you know, great statistical totals last year, but he also did so at, especially for a rookie, and especially, especially for a rookie on uh, a competitive team, you know, the, 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 certainly through the, you know, the shutdown, the Grizzlies were in, in prime position to, to grab that eighth playoff spot. Um, it, it's to some degree uh, unprecedented for, for a guy to have, you know, that combination of volume and efficiency, especially uh, you know, from a lead guard spot as a, as a first year player. Um, and, you know, obviously he was well thought of enough in NBA circles to be easily the, the, you know, the consensus number two pick. And I think he would have, had he been in this year's draft, I think he would have been the, 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 the easy number one pick um, just because he and he and Zion, um, you know, were so separated from, from uh, the rest of the class last year and, and uh, over and above this year. So, uh, obviously, the the kind of the the athleticism, the explosiveness, the passing vision. Um, I think one thing that that has has really stood out to me, kind of watching him both in in college and uh, with the Grizzlies, but especially in college when he was you know by far the best player on his team at, at Murray State, was he he is he he seems like a guy people like to play with, and I think that's that's kind of an underrated factor for a. Uh, kind of a ball dominant young score is being able to bring guys with him and not just, um, you know, put up numbers and highlights for himself. And that really stands out as far as the Grizzlies go. You know, whenever, you know, in the media sessions and things like that, whenever we talk to the other players, they just rave about how, you know, special of a talent Jolly is and how fun of an atmosphere he creates both on and off the court. You know, in your article, Seth, you and Dave both talked about 
Obviously, Jaw is a wonderful talent. The next step for him naturally, though, is to develop a reliable jumper. And if he does that, you know, that's something that takes him to an all-star level, maybe even higher, you know, at level of accolades. But the thing about it is also is that with his skill set, with his finishing ability, his playmaking ability, it really ha- helps him step out, you know, stand out in the fourth quarter. You know, he was an historically, um, you know, productive fourth quarter player for a rookie last year, one of the best in the NBA. He seems to have that takeover ability through knowing when to feature his strengths, you know, at the times they're needed the most. Is that something else you take away from Jaw? He kind of has that a, a, a takeover ability in the game to a level that many his age do not have. Man, that's a, that's a good question. Um, that's, clutch is a, a kind of quote-unquote clutch play is a is actually a pretty it's somewhat a controversial subject in, in uh, certainly in statistical circles. Um, you know, how much to say, oh, based on one year, he's going to be a guy who's going to be, you know, quote-unquote clutch throughout his career. At the same time, um, you know, his kind of his, – his, his electricity off the dribble – is the kind of thing that in a situation where, okay, everyone knows what's coming, stop it. Um, it, 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 it becomes, you know, it, it's almost the, from a style standpoint, it's sort of the opposite of, of, you know, the Chris Paul, I'm going to shake you down and shoot this elbow fade away. And there's nothing you can do about it there. Like, um, but it's just, it, it has the potential to be the same kind of thing. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to attack your feet and beat you and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and the question is, I think, uh, you, you bring up the jump shot. Um, I think something we've seen with, with kind of stars who have kind of one massive skill or, or one overwhelmingly great skill is if they go to that kind of pitch all game, it's maybe less effective in the fourth quarter. So jaw developing more of a jump shot might let him mix it up more for the first three quarters of a game. And then, you know, you do get down towards the end and it's like, okay, enough with the jump shots. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to the basket now. Uh, and, and because the defenders haven't been, haven't seen that fastball so many times in a row, it's just that much more effective. Does that make sense as a sort of convoluted analogy? Oh, it absolutely does. And that's the thing that, you know, you bring up a great point. We had talked about, you know, I've seen it here in Memphis, you know, his fourth quarter quarter ability is great. His ability to finish um, is great as well. But you're absolutely correct. You've got to be able to mix it up because especially in a playoff series where the Grizzlies hope that Jaw eventually leads them. If you see Jaw, you know, the game one, game two, and he's going to the same bag of tricks every single time, obviously they're effective, but at some point they're they're going to be stopped. So you got to have another you know, alternate way of having success. And the jump shot obviously does that for all four quarters. But but speaking of that, Seth, you know, when it comes to John, obviously last night, you know, this Grizzlies team, John arguably had the best performance by a Grizzlies player in history, and the Grizzlies still lost. You know, y'all hit on, you know, hit the nail on the head in your article talking about, you know, the Grizzlies have a lot of, you know, you mentioned yourself, part of the way to get to 500 in the NBA is having competent talents. And then to take the next step, you need to turn quantity into excellence. Is that the Grizzlies, you know, philosophy right now? It seems they know that they have one part excellence. They hope they have another in Jaron Jackson Jr. But you see a lot of competence on the Grizzlies. Now it's kind of time to take a step back and see how you could turn that competence into excellence overall to support John Jaron. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, 
you know, we've seen the, the kind of classic recent example of a team that sort of maxed out by just never putting bad players on the floor was kind of the early Brad Stevens Celtics. And those were, you know, those were frisky teams that, you know, would get to, you know, 45 wins, something like that, and you know, scare a team in the first round of the playoffs, but not really have a ceiling much higher than that. And the Celtics became a contender when they started to add, you know, first it was Kyrie Irving and now, then now, you know, the development of, of especially Jason Tatum into kind of a, a, a top flight, uh, you know, star. Um, and as well as kind of some other very high end players around him. And uh, that's a little bit where I think the Grizzlies might find themselves now, because again, they have a lot of players who you kind of like, who can be rotation pieces on good teams, but they're, um, they're, you know, side dishes rather than the meal. Um, and part of this season, I think, is, is going to be evaluation of which of those guys can be more um, and, which, and, and maybe guys you are willing to use as part of a, a, a package to kind of consolidate talent into, you know, hire, you know, three pretty good players into one really good player kind of trade. And that's the thing about it that I'll also ask is this, is that when it comes to the Grizzlies, so you know that you have Jaw, you have Jaren. Yep. But when you look at these true title contenders, you know, it seems like that nowadays you have to have two arguably Hall of Fame level players to really be competitive. Now, that may change as some of these older talents eventually find themselves out of the NBA. But one other trend that you see among NBA champions, Seth, is that you don't see a ton of them. You know, you see very few of them have the, a point guard as their premier talent. You usually see the point guard like Kyrie with LeBron or Kyle Lowry with um, Kawhi. You see the point guards being the high complementary second piece. So with John Jaren still in place, it still seems like that for the Grizzlies to take a next step as a contender, they're going to have to find a highly, highly talented wing, whether it be the draft or trade, to be that true contender. Do you feel, John Jaron, are parts that can be there for a true contender in time? Um, and, and do you think the next logical step is to eventually find that wing player to complement them? So assuming he assuming he can stay healthy and develops the, the shooting a little bit, I think Morant is, is absolutely uh, on that trajectory. Um, I'm a little more wait and see with Jaron Jackson. I think that that the the, the tools are certainly there. Um, kind of turning those into better kind of impact on both ends of the floor. Uh, you know, he hasn't he he's he fouls too much on defense. I think you know this. I think he, he he's a little bit inconsistent in turnover prone on offense. Um, but the the skills are there to be you know a, a very high end player. It's just you, him putting it together is is the question. But I, I, I do think you're on to something in that the best players over uh, over this area of NBA play have strongly tended to be kind of the, you know, the 6'8 playmaker type. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, Kawhi Leonard or, or LeBron or, you know, you can you can go down the line. And, and, and just because the, the players who are, you know, big enough to – uh, you know, impact the game defensively, rebound, and you know, hold up on on the inside if they get switched onto a big guy, but also uh, you know, have the ball in their hands and make plays for themselves and their teammates. 
uh, on offense. And, you know, the, the Morant size is obviously a, a limitation on, on the, the first half of that equation. Um, I don't think it's quite as, as much of a, uh, a detriment for just him, but I do think they do need that, that kind of um, at minimum kind of borderline all-star level wing to, to really complement and, and, and round that out. And we're hoping that we eventually find them. You know, it's nice to have the pieces in place. You know, obviously we don't want to, you know, get disappointed about the future or anything. Um, I, there's obviously a lot to be encouraged by, but I agree with you. I think that that type of player certainly is a compliment. And if the Grizzlies could ever find him and we have a competent front office, we feel, you know, can eventually find that player, you know, turning that quantity into excellence, as you so astutely put it in the article, I think that's the next step. But one of the things yeah, that I, I think plays – go ahead. No, I just wanted to, to – one thing I would be encouraged on, I know that that you know, ex, like expectations and and you know, optimism might be might be high after after last season, kind of being being a little bit of a surprise. Um, I would be encouraged by the degree of patience that it really does seem like the, the front office is showing. Um, so many young teams, when they kind of surprise in in like a first year, they you know get ahead of themselves. Maybe you, you know, you won more from your share of close games. So you were, uh, you know, you were uh, a just below 500 team that ended up being just above 500 or something like that. We've seen that happen uh, just a ton of times. And the team, you know, goes all in on that and then realizes actually we weren't quite as good as we thought we were. And a few guys had career years and now we're taking a step back and we've kind of mortgaged our future for, you know, an uncertain presence. And, you know, the Grizzlies have, it seems like they've, They've assessed that the West is going to be, you know, brutally tough this year and taking a little bit of a wait and see attitude, which I, I think um, is prudent in its own right, but also just gives them a, a year to like, okay, what do we have in Brandon, Brandon Clark? What uh, can Dylan Brooks, um, you know, succeed in a, in a, in a less prominent role is uh, can we get some shooting consistency out of D'Anthony Melton and on and on down the line? Uh, and that, and having that kind of evaluation time is so important uh, from a front office standpoint in terms of making the kind of decisions well that you need to add that that high-end talent in the future. That's something that we are so thankful for after the previous regime uh, that was here uh, with Memphis is having a competent front office and agree completely. And that's what Zach Kleiman himself said the other day in a media session. You know, it's just the patience of, you know, knowing what they have, knowing it's initially had success, but now really taking time to assess it, to get a better understanding of what's needed to go forward. But one other area where the front office really excelled was getting the right head coach, I feel, to number one, make this rebuild successful, but hopefully, um, you know, be there as well when the Grizzlies are ready to truly compete. And that's Taylor Jenkins. When we come back, I'll talk with Seth a bit about Taylor Jenkins and his and, and looking at his future with the Grizzlies. So as mentioned, Seth is um, part of the basketball research team over um, at The Athletic. He has wonderful articles out, uh, talked about, you know, for instance, uh, over the past uh, few days, he's talked about the Heat, the Grizzlies, as well as uh, giving some very, very good analysis about, you know, the awards and and, and the Lakers and the uh, um, Clippers as well. Uh, But Seth, before your time with 
the Athletic, uh, you were um, the director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks from 2016 to 2019. That was the time when Mike Budenholzer and his staff came over, which included Taylor Jenkins from Atlanta. Now, when he was hired here, the thing that Taylor Jenkins was known for was his heroic efforts to keep the, the Bucks bench uh, from <laughs> going to being a part of a fight. But there wasn't much known about him in terms of, you know, NBA circles. You know, the Dusk Grizzlies fans could get an opinion of in your time there. I'm sure at some point y'all had interactions. Just your overall thoughts about Jenkins, you know, why he's been so successful initially as a coach and, and your faith in him to be the guy who not only can lead the Grizzlies through this rebuild, but also be there to make a difference when they're truly ready to contend as a coach. So I would say the the number one adjective that comes to mind when I think of Taylor is organized, um, and not in like a you know a, a, a sort of a bean counting you know kind of anal retentive way, but just just kind of knows how to set up a plan and set out the steps you need to go through to execute that plan. And and really uh, on on Bud's staff, that was his role was to all right we get together, we decide big picture of what we're going to do. Taylor, how do we do it? And that was, that was kind of his, his sort of executive kind of, kind of role largely. Um, and I think that's a, that's a great kind of mindset and skill set for a head coach in today's day and age, especially for a team that is, you know, in the process is of course a loaded word in NBA circles now. Uh, but, going through the process of building a team from the ground up. Um, I don't think he's someone who's going to get too high or, or, or get too low. He's going to, you know, there's, there, there's a plan. He, he is going to, uh, and I'm sure he does like uh, identify kind of what some key indicators and steps are going to be and, and really, you know, encourage players to develop along those lines and, and make decisions accordingly. Um and the second part is, is he's got, he's, he's, you know, along with not being too high or too low, I think that's a, that's a good demeanor in terms of, of dealing with, with uh, players in, in today's NBA. Uh, he, he's, he's not a yeller and a screamer. Um, obviously, like, he's fiery, but, but he's not going to be someone who's going to, you know, uh, I don't think he's going to be the kind of coach that has the shelf life that we see with kind of some of the more vociferous coaches where, you know, you hear the same voice at high volume every day for a couple of years and it starts to become, you know, background noise that you turn out, tune out. Um, I, so I, I, I don't think that's going to be, you know, where, uh, uh, an issue for him. So I, I, you know, I was very happy for him when he, when he got the job and, and I think he's done a, he's done a really nice job so far and you should be, you should be pretty happy with, with, uh, with how you're set up there. And um, I uh, uh, do some writing over at Grizzly Bear Blues, and I had done a recent series in which I talked about how um, it seems in ways that um, uh, Coach Jenkins is trying to kind of evolve the Grizzlies roster to share some of the characteristics that have really helped Mike Budenholzer's teams during his time in Atlanta and Milwaukee. You know, the playmaking, the shooting frequency, um, you know, the shot selection as well. You know, obviously they're not there yet of where they are on the competitive timeline, but do you kind of see that in how the Grizzlies roster has evolved? And, and do you feel that that is um, a, a, a very advantageous way of setting up a roster in today's NBA? You know, we've seen it lead to good success in Milwaukee, obviously with Giannis as the center point, but do you feel kind of following in the things that Budenholzer 
struggles or stresses and emphasizes is a good way to you know continue to evolve the Grizzlies roster uh, to make the most of the talents that they have? It's an interesting question because there's so many different ways you can you can interpret you know what any given coach's style is. Um, I, I don't think it would be a, a you know just the comparison between Morant and Giannis as your best player already indicates that you're going to want to play differently. Um, just from a, from an X's and O's standpoint, like you know Giannis does different things well than than Ja does. Um, so I think that, you know, they're, the, the Grizzlies are probably likely to always be more, you know, spread pick and roll heavy than, than, uh, Bud has the Bucks playing, um, just because of, of personnel, but in terms of, um, you know, maximizing your best player, uh, and also putting a system in place where over the course of a regular season, you are, you know, focused more on you know, focus more internally on, um, okay, if we do the things that, that we're supposed to do well, we'll be all right and things will work themselves out. Um, that's something that has, I think, come into play more broadly in the NBA over the last 15, 20 years, um, as opposed to, okay, who are we playing tonight? Here's all the things we're going to do differently. Um, I think more and more coaches and teams have taken the longer view of, of trying to get through the regular season by – no. Okay. Here, here are our principles. Let's worry about that first every night. Um, and then, you know, we'll get into some specifics about the opposition. Um, and I think, I think that Taylor probably takes that from Bud a little bit. And um, I, uh, over the course of a regular season, I think that's a, that's a, uh, that, that's a, that's a good way to get through a season. And again, also a good way to get a clean look at evaluating your players, which um Again, I, I come at this from the front office standpoint, um, and you know, individual wins and losses are are what they are. But you know, always looking forward towards you know what we're going to do next. Um, getting that clean look at players is so nice, is so so helpful um, to to help make those decisions. Like you don't you're not in a situation where hey, I wonder if this player can do that. You've seen him try and either succeed or fail, and that's just so helpful in in you know, making those evaluations. And Seth, from your time, you know, in the NBA in general, and especially in the front office, you know, we've been in the era now, you know, ever since really the Celtics of, you know, the the top heavy, you know, superstar duos and trios. But um, it seems it seems like that depth is starting to really emerge as, as a true advantage, you know, for teams that may not have the, the best duo of stars, but really can be there to help out in playoff series. I feel that that was a big reason why Denver and um, um, Miami were able to have the runs that they were last year. And that seems to be something that the Grizzlies have put a lot of emphasis on is depth to put out different rotations, depth to give different looks, depth to always have multiple shooters, for instance, on the court. Do you feel the Grizzlies' approach of trying to be, you know, have one of the best benches in the NBA, have that depth? That is a good way to build a roster from the, from the start to really allow for you not only to win in the regular season, but also through that depth, have good success in the postseason, you know, once the Grizzlies start getting to the playoffs regularly. So I think we, we, we kind of started here where that, that, that's part of, you know, you, you get 240 good minutes a night from, from your, your, your team, and that gets you to a certain level. 
um, a trap that, and I'm not saying the Grizzlies will or won't fall into this, but a trap that, that teams can fall into is they kind of start to lock into pretty good, which takes great off the table. Um, and, and so you've got a lot of pretty good players and as guys, you know, age out of their rookie contracts, you start to sign everyone to, you know, decent value extensions. And all, then all of a sudden you're, you know, $10 million over the salary cap with a, with a, you know, a 42 win, a 45 win team and you're the sixth seed every year. Um, that's a trap that teams, teams fall into. Um, but if you can be, you know, a little bit ruthless about the evaluation of your, you know, your, your third through eighth guys, shall we say, um, then you do have the opportunity to use that, that depth as a building block to then add those higher end pieces that all of a sudden you're, you're now, okay, you, you're, you're not just, you know, top heavy at one and two, but you have like, you have really good you know, above average to elite starters at four positions. And now, now we're talking. Um, now, um, unless you're, you know, unless you're going to be the Lakers and have two of the best six or seven players in the league, um, the, the kind of the recipe for being a title contender is having, you know, a, uh, you know, a top five guy, a top 15 guy, and a couple other top 50 guys, um, you know, give or take. Um and so getting to those, you know, making sure that your third and fourth best players aren't top 100 guys, they're top 50 guys, that, that's kind of where it gets a little tricky. Um, and that's where, like, that, having that broad depth uh, is both an opportunity and a danger. makes a lot of sense and I think that that's what the Grizzlies you know kind of what you had mentioned you know getting back to that article like you said getting back to the beginning of what we talked about in the conversation taking the time to evaluate what you've got in your depth could some of these guys turn into a top 100 guys eventually but if not even if they can't then taking their contracts and turning them into you know maybe we draft you know a very very talented wing and then perhaps make a trade for that third or fourth player you know that's a very good point the good thing about depth is, is that the quantity can be there all day long, and it's great if you get to the playoffs. But if you can turn it in, you know, to you know, concentrated quality and time, I think that certainly is a great way to go. But beyond the roster itself, what else stands out for teams to really start to emerge as sustainable winners? And in the third segment, I want to talk with Seth a bit more from an analytical standpoint of what stands out to him as being a characteristic among the NBA's most consistent winners. So, Seth, one reason that I was really excited to to reach out to you and get to talk with you is because from your background, you know, being in research and things such as that, you know, I, I love coming at things from an analytical statistical standpoint. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily mean to ask, you know, what stat really stands out above all else as being the most meaningful. But when you look at these teams that are good in the playoffs, when you look at these teams that, you know, consistently find ways to make it work, even if, you know, things outside of their control don't work out for them. You know, what is it? For instance, is it, you know, I know that there's a focus in the NBA now about getting the highest percentage looks at two and then from the three as you can. Is there a characteristic, you know, as an analytical or statistical characteristic about the most sustainable winners in the NBA that stands out to you that, you know, we as Grizzlies fans hope the Grizzlies may eventually be able to do well? Oh, I think you kind of, you, you sort of touched on it. Um, the you know the the three point revolution has been uh, you know well documented and 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 very important 
in the development of the modern game. But when you when you really start to break it down, um, the, the 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 areas on the floor that the that teams tend to win, the become elite teams, become championship teams, is um, the teams that can get to the rim effectively and finish there and prevent the opposition from doing likewise. Um, that's you know. In the in a playoff setting against elite opposition, that's that's maybe a little easier said than done, and that's where having that that top end talent rather than the depth really kind of comes into play. Um, I mean, if you think about it from a just a math problem, um, you know the 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 average NBA starting forward is the fifteenth best uh, small forward in the league. Um, okay, the average playoff. Uh, starting small forward is the you know eighth or ninth best small forward in the league. The average small small forward for a, a you know conference finalist is is one of the one of the five or seven best small forwards in the league. So the, as you kind of progress in the postseason, the target you're aiming at to have an advantage becomes smaller and smaller. And that's really I think that that example really explains why top end talent is why elite talent is so important in the playoffs is, is, you know, you, okay. You have LeBron, you know, you have, you have a pretty good chance of having the best player on the floor every, every night in the playoffs. That's a, that's a pretty good trump card to have. So beyond any sort of, of kind of statistical, you know, uh, trickery or, or indicator. I mean, that's, you know, talent wins is, is still the, the biggest lesson. And that's, um, you know, making that actionable go a little tougher and figuring out exactly which guys are and aren't those elite players are, uh, becomes very important. But um, I think if there's, if there's still one lesson I take away, it's that. And that is something that the Grizzlies really stood out about them last year was that in the paint, they were very good, both on offense and defense, top 10 of the league in each area. And so on offense now, you know, getting and it looks as, you know, you just alluded to, seems they can do that in the paint. And what they're trying to do is work off that on offense uh, to be able to get higher percentage looks from three. So it looks like their offense is trending in the right way. But defensively, Seth, you know, it seems like the Grizzlies can protect the women pretty well, but you, you know, when it comes to these traditional bigs, they they lose a little bit less value, you know, in in the playoffs. When it seems like it becomes more of a perimeter focus in these playoff series, the Grizzlies combination of Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr., if they can realize the consistency of their defensive potential, that could truly be an advantage for them going forward in terms of their switchability and ability to get away from the basket. In these, you know, as they become a sustainable winner and potentially in the playoffs, do you think that can be that duo could be a true advantage for them? You know, as they get closer to contentions, especially on defense. Uh, I, I think that's what you—that's what you see in them. That—that's what you hope to see from them is—is is having that that kind of the lateral quickness to guard on the perimeter a little bit, but also the kind of the the size and bounce and and, and timing to you know protect the rim. Um, uh, that that's an area where you know Jackson especially uh, he's a great shot blocker, but he fouls too much and he's not a great rebounder. So he kind of only has you know a third or a half of that kind of that that rim protection thing down. Um, you know, you look at uh, if you look if you're looking at just you know block shots, you're you're kind of missing the other part because 
you know, okay, you block a shot, that's great. But if you if you send a guy to the the foul line for, you know, two two for two shots every for every shot you block, you know, the the highest percentage shot in basketball is is the shooting foul. So like you're you're kind of giving away the advantage. And then it, obviously it doesn't matter if you you know defend shots at the rim well if the if the opposition you know gets it off the backboard and lays it in on a second chance. So um, I don't want it to sound like I'm being hypercritical of Jackson, but it's it's that that whole picture of defending the interior where where you know I think you would hope to see improvement from him to really put him on the level of kind of the 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 versatile playoff big that, that you're, you're talking about. That I'll ask is this, is that, you know, obviously I, I don't think that, you know, Noah or that Memphis has a talent to the level of Giannis, but I, you know, we've talked about, you know, your time in Milwaukee, obviously Taylor Jenkins type in Milwaukee. Another thing, another connection is, you know, seeing the recent, you know, extension of, you know, Giannis. And of course, you never know in the NBA what the future is going to hold, but the commitment that he's made to that small market, you know, over time, it certainly seems as if he truly values the connection that's there between him and Milwaukee. And that resonates to it, to a place like Memphis, who we now have, you know, maybe two talents we've never really had before natural talents, you know, in our franchise and John Morant and Jackson jr. You know, just how important to these small markets was the commitment of Giannis to Milwaukee. And when you get, when you see the interaction between, you know, Jackson jr. And John in Memphis, do you get kind of that same feeling to where, you know, kind of like Giannis really valued what's there for him in Milwaukee. You know, that's something that Memphis fans should be encouraged by in terms of, you know, a foreseeable future with John Jaron in Memphis, you know, staying for a long time with the Grizzlies. I don't. I don't even think you need to look north to to see what that looks like. I think you in, in Memphis. I think you had that with for a number of years with you know Mike Conley and and Marcus All. Um, and you know I I think that that putting a a competitive team around these guys is uh, players who get to that level are competitors and. The quickest way to keep them happy is yeah the money, but the money you know works itself out, and the the numbers that that are that the top players in the NBA get are you know are 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 high enough that you know at, after a certain point it's just keeping score. Um, but if you if you're putting a situation there where yeah we can be in the conference finals every year, we can we can challenge for a championship every year, that has a way of 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 uh of keeping guys sort of connected and and wanting to stay um i think a lot of the situations we we have seen where um you know players of a certain stature leave are situations where um you know to some degree there's been a a a failure on the part of the organization to put that talent around them and sometimes it's bad luck um but but sometimes but oftentimes it's it's you know just Poor talent evaluation and decision making, um, and you know that's that that so that's the the pressure that kind of of the the front office faces is uh, making sure Morant especially is like yes I can win here, um, and, and he has that feeling in a, in, a, in a couple of years that's going to be pretty vital. Um, now the the good news is since he's only in his second year, uh, you've, you've got plenty of time to works out um and just the way that you know the way that the contract structures work it's not really a 
it's hard for a player to really force their way out before around their sixth or seventh year in the league. So, you know, you've got, you've got a couple, three years to, to really put that team around him, but that's a big reason why you need to get that top end talent around him. So when he's in his fifth, sixth year in the league, he looks around and says, I can win with these guys. And more importantly than I can win with these guys that are, that are here now. But I feel like if there's someone we need to go get to put us over the top, that the folks I'm working with, you know, upstairs in the front office can get that done. And that is absolute music to a lot of, you know, my ears and Grizzlies fans ears, because, you know, as you said, with Taylor Jenkins organization is the big thing with him. What seems like, you know, that organization, that coordination, you know, just that calculating effort and the competence to make it work. This Grizzlies front office has, you know, gone beyond, you know, when it comes to confidence building and creativity that they've used, they've made good move after good move. You know, I agree with you. I think that it comes down to a competent front office, you know, even more so than the market that you're in. And and the Grizzlies front office has done nothing but give us the confidence in knowing that they should be able to do that. Um, Seth, obviously, you know, it's it's the end of this year, but the beginning of another basketball season. You know, I, I know that you put great piece after great piece out over at The Athletic just for a city that loves basketball and loves to get different perspectives. Can you let us know of any projects you're working on or where folks can find your great work um, as this season gets started? Um, so I writing at the athletic um, the start of the season, it's kind of hard to know what the, what the, uh, the, the storylines are going to be. So certainly in the early part of the season, I like to kind of let the, let the, the league wash over me. Um, I'm, very interested in I think the the two teams that right now are are most interesting to me are the Nuggets and Suns. Um, whether the Nuggets uh, can kind of uh, I, I picked before the season I picked them to have the best record in the West and for Nikola Jokic to win win MVP. Um, now a lot of that depends on Jamal Murray being the player he was in the bubble last year. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. And then the Suns I think are are uh, you know are really um, uh, that, that, what the Suns did this offseason was, a, I thought, a big part of why it made sense for the Grizzlies to be patient is, you know, you add Chris Paul to, to that team and all of a sudden they have maybe the best backcourt in the league. And I'm very excited to see kind of what what they can put together for the season. But, you know, all in all, uh, I kind of like to wait, you know, two, three weeks into the season just to see where everyone is and then, then start to to – identify kind of the trends I'm noting around the league and, and, and follow those through for the entire season. His name is Seth Partnow. You can find him at Acreage Man on Twitter. Just a wonderful basketball mind and just a, a very, very awesome read as well. Anytime I get to um, catch up on one of his articles and his takes on Twitter, it's worth it. So make sure to follow him and his work. Seth cannot thank you enough for joining us. If you wouldn't mind just sticking around for a second after the show, but again, you can find the show at locked on Grizz myself at stats, SAC podcast, wherever podcasts are available, Spotify, Stitcher on the podcast app on your phone, but Seth to you and your family, very Merry Christmas, sir. You as well. That's all for us here on Locked on Grizzlies. We'll talk to you soon here on the Locked on Grizzlies podcast.
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.